The Lost Colony of Roanoke gets a lot of credit for being one of America's great mysteries, but that's only one facet of the story. It's a fascinating glimpse into the world of Elizabethan exploration, the early New World failures of the English, and the society that would eventually produce a successful colony at Jamestown. It highlights the difference between the Elizabethan and Jacobian eras, and it's a story that reverberated throughout early Virginia history. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvala, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. At the time the Roanoke Colony was founded, the Spanish were the undisputed rulers of the New World. They claimed everything, and no one had been able to successfully contest the issue. A thousand-person Huguenot colony on the modern Georgia-South Carolina border was slaughtered when discovered by the Spanish in 1565. It was a clear signal. We own the New World, and we will not accept competition. Just a couple of years before the massacre at Fort Caroline, Englishmen began to sail around Africa and the West Indies. They smuggled slaves and they raided Spanish ships. Elizabeth encouraged these raids because they fit her strategy of cheaply weakening her rivals and avoiding open confrontation. In fact, a privateer in the Caribbean could do an estimated four times as much damage as a mercenary in the Low Countries. It was a win-win situation for the Queen and her privateers. Throughout the 1560s and 1570s, people like Hawkins and Drake got rich, weakening the Spanish threat. With help from runaway slaves and French settlers, they started planning more and bolder plundering activities. They were starting to become interested in colonization, too. In 1577, Elizabeth gave Humphrey Gilbert a grant for a new colony. One thing that's interesting to note is that he specifically tried to reach out to Catholics as potential colonists by offering them a place to practice their religion without being penalized for not attending the established church. The colony, of course, was a failure. After trying to claim land that was already a part of an international community, making it essentially the only land in North America that didn't fit his patent, Gilbert went into debt and died at sea on the way home. He passed the torch to his brother, though. Raleigh took his position in Elizabeth's court and as the leader of England's colonization efforts. Elizabeth soon gave Raleigh a patent, though she didn't want her handsome favorite endangering himself abroad. Raleigh's goal was to set up a base from which to plunder the Spanish. He wanted to be close enough to be effective and far enough away to be safe. He had heard stories of possible mines in the Appalachians, so he selected a place close to the Chesapeake Bay. Now, the story of Roanoke occurred in three phases. First, there was an exploratory mission to the island. Second, there was a military garrison. And third, there was the famed Lost Colony. Each phase was different, run by different people, and each contributed to the story as a whole. First, the exploratory mission. Because Raleigh wasn't allowed to go to the area himself, he needed information to help him make better decisions. He sent an exploratory expedition commanded by Philip Amatis, son of a merchant family from Plymouth, and Arthur Barlow, a gentleman soldier, along with a Portuguese pirate named Simon Fernandez. When they arrived at Roanoke, most of the locals weren't particularly surprised to see them. They had seen ships passing by, and news could go hundreds of miles across native tribes. They would have heard stories from the tribes in Florida, and they probably would have heard the story of the Spanish missionaries who tried to convert the Powhatan Indians about 
100 miles north of them. In fact, it was on this trip that the Englishman first heard the name Wahoon Seneca. The Choanox occasionally clashed with his Powhatan tribe, and this was the era in which he was consolidating his control of Tinicomoco, modern-day Virginia. Also, the local Secatan and Pamlico tribes had just gotten through a bloody war with the Powhatan. When Amadis and Barlow's crew reached Roanoke, the local people were welcoming and both sides were interested in trading. The English wanted animal skins and the Indians wanted metal goods. Relations were good and they learned about the area and its inhabitants. They learned that the Choanox were the most powerful people in the region, and there were also Secatans and Wepimaoks. All of these were Algonquin-speaking peoples, which gave the later Jamestown settlers an edge learning the language which was also spoken by the Powhatan. A few weeks in, a lot of the explorers were killed when exploring inland. The survivors were forced to hurry back to Roanoke, and they weren't sure what had happened. Most likely, it had nothing to do with the English, and they just got caught in the crossfire in a battle between the Secatan and the Wapamayox, but the event inserted a level of fear and distrust in the settlers. But they'd done their job, and they were ready to go home, so they arranged for a diplomatic exchange where the English left two men on Roanoke, one with the Croatones and one with the Sigatan, and they took back two people selected by those tribes' leaders to England. One was Monteo, son of the Croatone Werewanse, her leader, and one was Wanchese, a high-ranking member of the Sigatan tribe. They returned to England, excited about New World prospects, and Raleigh was eager to set up a settlement in Roanoke. In fact, the prospect of a settlement was getting more and more enticing, because by this time, England was in an undeclared war at sea with the Spanish. When the Portuguese king died, Spain got control of Portugal and consolidated an even more powerful empire. In response, Elizabeth had stepped up privateer activity, and it was war. There were profits to be had in the Caribbean, so Raleigh's privateering harbor would be great for Elizabeth, great for Drake, and great for him. He set to work building the settlement. He funded it himself and organized it himself. Monteo and Wanchese helped raise awareness of the voyage, and they gave Raleigh information. He got support from Walsingham, Drake, Grenville, and the House of Commons, but the House of Lords was more reluctant to get behind the mission. Regardless, Elizabeth was also on board, and it wasn't too long before 600 soldiers, sailors, and artisans set out aboard seven ships. This was, of course, the second voyage. The ships were scattered and one sunk after a week at sea, but they managed to capture a couple of Spanish ships and regather in Puerto Rico, where they rebuilt another ship. The Leader of this voyage was Ralph Lane, a man whose origins aren't well known, but he had served in the House of Commons, and he may have been related to Catherine Parr. He was a military officer and a member of Raleigh's inner circle who had fought in Ireland and would ultimately die there. Also on board were Amadas, Grenville, and Wanchese and Monteo. When they arrived, the English again received a warm and generous welcome from the local peoples. One group did steal a metal cup, though, and in response, Grenville burned the town in nearby fields. He didn't kill anybody, but he wanted to make a statement. It was a massive overreaction, and this type of behavior would ultimately come to characterize this group of colonists. 
Grenville soon left, though, expecting Drake to bring a fleet with a second wave of supplies and settlers. He didn't know that Elizabeth had diverted Drake's fleet to Newfoundland to harass Spanish shipping. He took a letter from Ralph Lane confirming all the optimistic accounts from Amadis in Barlow's voyage and calling North America the goodliest scope under the cope of heaven. He concluded his enthusiastic letter by saying that if Virginia had but horses and men in some reasonable proportion, I dare assure myself, being inhabited with English, that no realm in Christendom would be comparable to it. The settlers started setting up camp, building a small flexible enclosure with artillery bastions to protect the colony from Spanish attack. Relations with the natives were so peaceful that they didn't even feel the need to defend themselves from them. When they returned to America, the English who had lived with the Indians returned to the settlement, and Monteo and Wanchese returned to their tribes. They both brought stories about the extraordinary things they'd seen, both good and bad, a stone city full of people, rivers full of tall ships, but also an overpowering stench. They had stayed in a large house belonging to a powerful lord, and they'd met many important people, including one who they had called the Queen, who was the greatest among them. Monteo and Wanchese interpreted the English differently, though. Monteo was enthusiastic. He said that they had been treated well, and that the English had behaved like friends. He was smitten with English culture. Wanchese was more concerned that he hadn't been able to discover why the English wanted to come to their lands in the first place. He tried to find out, but with no luck, and that itself left him suspicious of their intentions. Grenville's burning of a village over a small metal cup had confirmed his concerns that the English were dangerous and unpredictable. Amadis went inland to look for signs of wealth. It was, of course, his men who had been killed in the past, and Amadis saw the chance for retribution. So he killed 20 Wepimaeaks. In addition to revenge, he hoped that this would demonstrate the benefits of an English Sikitan alliance to the tribe's leader, Wingina. It was, like I said, the Wepimaeaks and the Sikitan who were currently in a war. And the incident had a double effect. On the one hand, Wingina could definitely see the potential benefits of an English alliance. If they were allied with their technology and their numbers, it would mean a great advantage in the local tribal wars that took place. It also meant access to new and exotic goods and technologies. On the other hand, the very thing that made the English attractive allies also made them dangerous. They'd already proven themselves unpredictable, and if they really did have the kinds of numbers that Wanchese talked about, Wingina would have to work fast to eliminate them before they overwhelmed him. Wanchese didn't trust the English, and while Wingina had been among the most welcoming people when the English arrived, he understood that the lack of trust was well-founded. Worse, the English were starting to behave, well, worse. When Drake's fleet didn't arrive, the soldiers got bored and irritable. They started trading more and more with the Indians for food and provisions, and they started to explore the land. They also started to be more violent. They went north to the town of Chesapeake, the biggest Sikatan city, but they were disappointed when they didn't find a gold-filled paradise like the Mexican and Peruvian towns that the Spanish had found. It was just a cluster of longhouses. Worse, 
English diseases were starting to kill people. When Gina knew that this was related to the English in some way, but he didn't know if it was intentional or not. Food wasn't exactly plentiful on Roanoke, and with winter approaching, the English dependence on them for food put an added pressure on the local population. This pushed Wingina to a firm conclusion that the English were too violent and too unreliable to be allies. He changed his name to Pemissipan, meaning one who watches closely, and this was a clear signal that he was going to attempt to destroy the colonists. To avoid open conflict, Pemissipan first tried to pit the English against the Choanox. This only got Lane and the Choanox chief talking, though, which taught him more than ever about the area. He learned about pearls and of a trading place where the people could go get copper and about the extended territory. As a precaution, Lane took the chief's son Skiko hostage as he left, but this was actually a pretty acceptable practice to the Indians, especially because he treated Skiko well. He was just trying to ensure that there was no surprise attack as he left, and Skiko actually became an even closer ally to the English than his father was. Monteo also joined them, and they started to explore the Roanoke River, but they noticed a distinct coldness in the tribes of the region when they asked to trade for food. When they kept going, Pemissipan launched an outright attack, but no one was seriously injured. The lack of food was a problem, though, and the English didn't know how to grow food, even if they'd wanted to. With supplies running low, Lane divided his men into small bands and sent them to go live off the land at Croatoan and on the mainland. When Pemissipan planned another attack, Skiko managed to warn the English, and the English fought back and managed to kill Pemissipan and his warriors. They had survived again, but this battle marked a dangerous turning point for the English. When the English had arrived at Roanoke, the tribes had their own patterns of alliances and their own enemies and their own allies. All the English had to do was somehow integrate into that. But suddenly, with this battle, the alliance structure on the island had changed. Tribes now took the sides for and against the English. Instead of being at the periphery, the English were now at the center of what could easily end up being a tribal war. Lane saw that the colony was in grave danger, and he decided to relocate to the southern shore of the Chesapeake as soon as possible. A week later, Drake arrived from the West Indies on another difficult A week later, Drake arrived from the West Indies on another difficult voyage. They hadn't been able to plunder anything of value, and disease had killed a lot of his men. He did bring enough provisions for a hundred people, though. As the English were relocating, rough weather forced them to throw most of their provisions overboard. It's at this point that Lane decided that enough was enough, and he ordered the colony to return to England. A week later, Grenville arrived with enough supplies for the whole colony to survive the winter. Raleigh was furious. He had wasted a huge amount of money on a now-wasted mission, and now Grenville was on Roanoke, unsure of what to do. Needing to maintain a constant presence on the island to maintain the terms of the patent, Grenville decided to leave a garrison of 15 soldiers. Lane had been so optimistic the year before, this was a sudden, drastic, and devastating change of course. 
Lane talked about the natural resources of Virginia, but Raleigh didn't care. That wouldn't help recoup his costs. He needed either minerals or a privateering base to make the mission worthwhile. But he was willing to try again because he had hopes of finding both. He would make some changes, though. First, Lane was fired. But Raleigh did ask him for feedback on what he needed to change in the future, and Lane had two big suggestions. First was the location. It wasn't good, and things were getting too hostile toward the English. Second was the people. The soldiers had been quick to kill the locals, quick to complain about the lack of comfortable lodging and good food, quick to get discouraged when they didn't find riches. They didn't care about the fate of the colony. They just wanted to get rich and go home. On this advice, Raleigh decided that the next colony would be populated by civilians. There weren't many people left to lead the venture. Most people that Raleigh knew were busy planning their own ventures. The only person that Raleigh really knew and trusted who was available was John White. On the one hand, White was a very good choice. He had been on both previous expeditions, and he was a middle-class artisan, which was exactly the type of people that Raleigh wanted to send. On the other hand, he was just a middle-class artisan. He hadn't led something like this in the past. He wasn't an explorer by trade or by nature. But White agreed to go, and he even helped with recruitment. Many of the people came from his congregation, and even his daughter and son-in-law decided to join the mission. Most of the colonists were in their 20s, or at most in their mid-30s, and many of the women were in their teens. There were only 117 colonists this time, and they were all pretty closely connected. A year after Lane had returned, Raleigh sent his new group of colonists to the New World. Fernandez was once again the captain, and oddly, the ships were again scattered by weather after a week at sea. They went to Puerto Rico to reconnoiter and gather supplies, but this time their time in the Caribbean was another disaster. They didn't manage to meet up with one of the lost ships, they didn't manage to get supplies, a number of people ate poisoned fruit, and two Irish settlers ran away to tell the Spanish exactly where the colony was going to be located. Virginia could easily become another Fort Caroline. The odd repetition of the ships being scattered en route to the Caribbean, and the series of disasters that should have been preventable by an experienced captain like Fernandez has caused some people to question whether the voyage was being sabotaged. Even White alluded to that, but on the other hand, Raleigh had sent a very inexperienced group of people to set up a colony at a time that England itself was new to the idea. They intended to settle on the mainland of the Chesapeake, but they had to stop on the way to pick up Grenville's men. The settlers and sailors had fought a lot over the course of the journey, and Fernandez was eager to go privateering. When the settlers weren't immediately ready to leave Roanoke, Fernandez announced that he was leaving and that he wouldn't take them up to the Chesapeake Bay. In his journal, White blamed Fernandez for derailing the mission, but he doesn't indicate that he fought back. In reality, he was probably fine with Fernandez leaving them on Roanoke, because by this time, everybody was tired of being at sea. They weren't seafaring people, and life aboard Elizabethan-era ships was incredibly unpleasant. Fernandez left them a pinnace that they could use to move later, and he still had to find Grenville's men. 
and hopefully rendezvous with the ship that they'd just lost off the coast of England. Two people, including White's daughter, were pregnant and just about to give birth, so staying on Roanoke probably seemed like a pretty good idea at the time. They didn't find Grenville's men. All they found was the bleached bones of somebody who had been killed by Indians, and the old settlement's houses overgrown and with deer in them. Soon, the lagging ship, commanded by Captain Spicer, arrived and both women had their babies. The only bad thing that happened at this point in time was the killing of one colonist by Sikatan warriors while he was fishing for crabs, but they managed to meet up with Monteo and the Croatoans who were still friendly. The Croatoans told White that it was the Sikatans behind the murder and that the Sikatan had also killed Grenville's men. Wanchese had been part of the group that killed them, and while some had escaped, they hadn't been heard of since. Preparing to return to England after privateering, Fernandez stopped by the colony around the time that Spicer was planning to leave. Things weren't exactly stable on the island, and having failed to get any types of provisions in the Caribbean, the colonists needed Raleigh to send a supply ship. Soon. They planned to send one person to England to convince Raleigh to send a supply ship, again at great personal expense, and they unanimously voted for White to be that person. White was understandably reluctant. He didn't want to be seen as following in Lane's footsteps and abandoning the colony. He didn't want to leave his family, and he worried that his stuff would be ruined when he returned, which was a pretty big deal considering the fact that he wasn't rich and those supplies were intended for his survival in America. The vote was unanimous, though, and White knew that they had a point. He was the one who knew Raleigh, so he was the one who was most likely to be able to convince him to spend the money. The remaining settlers did plan to move, though, so they agreed on a system to help White find them when they returned. The majority of colonists would move to whatever new location they chose, but a small garrison would remain on Roanoke Island, remaining in constant contact with the majority of the colonists. That garrison would meet up with White when he returned, but if they were forced to leave, they would carve their intended location into a tree at the settlement, and if it was an attack that forced them to leave, they would carve a cross over the name. So, White was going back across the Atlantic, leaving his family and friends behind. Now, bad timing and the inability to communicate had led to Lane's desertion, and timing and inability to communicate were about to cause more problems for Raleigh's colony. When White returned to London after a long, hard journey, England was preparing for a Spanish invasion. Elizabeth's Privy Council had ordered all English shipping to be stopped and prohibited any English ship from leaving port without permission. Raleigh, Grenville, and Ralph Lane were all on Elizabeth's Council of War, and the Roanoke colony was the last thing on anyone's mind. After encouragement from White, Fernandez, and others in London, Raleigh did start to organize a relief mission. He hoped a pinnace would be there by the next summer, which would be followed by a relief ship. At the last minute, though, Elizabeth canceled everything. The Spanish Armada was invincible, and England needed every ship it could get, and every experienced captain that it could muster. Raleigh could convince Elizabeth of most things, but he couldn't convince her to jeopardize the future of England for 117 people. Elizabeth did allow Raleigh to send two small ships to Roanoke, but the captain 
was more interested in plunder than rescuing the colonists. So when he tried to attack a bigger, stronger, faster French ship, his boat was predictably sunk, and White found himself back in London, this time with no hope of returning to Roanoke until the war was over. Eighteen months later, the armada was sunk. After a year and a half of waiting, the battle was quick. The English ships had used broadside cannons to sink Spanish ships before they could use their strength, speed, or size to overwhelm them. Soon afterward, Elizabeth gave Raleigh 42,000 acres of land in Ireland, and he started to build a series of communities there. He had lost interest in Roanoke, and it was only when White offered to pay a part of the cost of the voyage himself and offered to organize the mission himself that Raleigh agreed to send a ship. So Raleigh agreed to pay a hundred pounds for a vessel and to raise some money for supplies, but he wouldn't bring the colonists home. There were still no ships willing to take White to Roanoke, though. England was going on the offensive, and that meant that the possibility of extremely valuable plunder... The shipping ban hadn't been fully lifted anyway. Eventually, a year and a half later, meaning three years after White had left, he convinced a group of privateers bound for the West Indies to take him to Roanoke. The group included Captain Spicer, and it also included a young Christopher Newport, who will be very important to the Jamestown story. Taking White to Roanoke would allow them greater freedom to privateer in the Caribbean, so they agreed. But at the last minute, they broke their agreement and refused to take any supplies or additional settlers. White was desperate, though, so he agreed to go alone. Finally, three years after leaving his family and friends, his colonists that he felt responsible for, White was finally returning to Roanoke. But the weather was not on his side. One storm forced the fleet to stay at sea for an extra week, during which time White saw a pillar of smoke that he hoped was a, a signal from the colonists. Spicer drowned in another storm after the group's first day on the island. After finding no sign of human life on the island, White and some of the mariners found the old settlement. It was dismantled, but there was no sign of an attack. In fact, the palisade was still intact. The pinnace and the cannon that they had left with the settlers was gone, and everything was overgrown with grass and weeds. Most famously, the word Croatoan was carved into one tree, and C.R.O. was carved into another. There were no crosses over either carving. White also found his stuff completely destroyed and ransacked. The next logical step was to go to Croatoan Island. The Croatoans were friendly, and the agreed-upon signal had said that they had gone to Croatoan. The pinnace was gone, so every indication was that the colonists had gone there, but the same weather that had plagued them up to this point in their journey prevented White from going up the coast of Roanoke Island to Croatoan. As they were trying to make their way up the coast to Croatoan, they lost three anchors and almost sank. They were forced to go to Trinidad, which was a favorite pirate haunt. It had taken White three years to get back to Roanoke, and most likely he would never be able to return to America. He moved to Raleigh's Ireland plantation and died there a few years later. It's not that the colonists disappeared without a trace. It's that with Elizabethan resources, White couldn't reach the place 
that he would likely find the colonists, or at least news of their whereabouts. Raleigh still held an exclusive patent to colonize North America, and he wasn't interested in pouring more money into a twice-failed colony. He had his Irish plantation, he was married, and he was more interested in the gold of Guiana at this point. He only ever sent another ship to Roanoke to maintain the terms of his patent. That was ten years later, and with White dead, neither voyage was particularly interested in searching for the colonists. After Elizabeth died, James revoked Raleigh's patent. He also forbade privateering. This opened the door for the colonization of Virginia once again, and people almost immediately began planning new colonies. Jamestown, of course, was the first successful one, and the Jamestown colonists actually found some interesting clues as to the fate of the colonists. This was 20 years after their disappearance. First, when John Smith talked to the Powhatan leaders, both Obikonganu and Wahoon Seneca mentioned people who were clothed like the English and where people lived in houses built like the English. He even set out with the Powhatan guide to find the settlers, but that guide cut the voyage short right before Smith expected to find them, and that left Smith angry, thinking that he was cheated. Perhaps more interesting was that when one of Wahoon Seneca's brothers named Machumps went to London, he actually gave future colony William Strachey an account of what happened to the Roanoke colonists. Machumps said that the colonists had lived for 20 years with the Indians, becoming productive members of Indian society, mostly with the Choanoc tribe, and working copper into ornaments for them. Just a little before the first ships reached Jamestown, though, Wahoon Seneca's warriors had killed them all. They were at war with the Choanocs anyway, and they didn't want the English to ally with the Choanocs instead of them. A handful had survived by fleeing to surrounding towns, but the colonists were dead. Was it true? Who knows? It was a very detailed and precise account, though, and it was a pretty logical one. We do know that the Powhatan and the Choanocs were at war, and we know that Wahoon Seneca wanted to benefit from an alliance with the English. We also know that the Choanoc were friendly to the English and that the only tribe in the region big enough to really and they were and that they were the only tribe in the region big enough to really accommodate the bulk of the settlers. We also know that if the settlers were to survive, they would have had to integrate into Indian society. And we also know that future settlers managed to survive by integrating into Indian society. If the Roanoke settlers had survived, that was a completely logical progression of their story. And there's not really any reason that Machumps would have made up stories about their survival. Another interesting account emerged about 100 years later when a man named John Lawson moved to North Carolina. There, he met descendants of the Croatoan tribe who claimed to be descended from white people. They had gray eyes to substantiate their claim, and they said that from time to time the ship that had brought Raleigh's men, Raleigh by name, Raleigh's men to Roanoke, often appeared under sail. They also referenced the book that the English had brought that they had embraced, which was likely the Bible. And we know that Monteo had actually converted to Christianity. He had been the first Protestant Native American. 
Finally, 20 years ago, excavators working on Hatteras Island, which was once Croatoan Island, found a copper-based brass ring emblazoned with a prancing lion. When they first found it, they thought that it was gold, and they wondered if it had been brought by a Roanoke settler. When they discovered that it was brass, though, they began to wonder if it was a cheap trade item from later. But what would be fascinating is if it had actually been manufactured by the colonists during their time living with the Choanaks. Ultimately, we'll never know exactly what happened to the colonists, but we have a couple of really good guesses. More relevant to our story, though, was seeing what caused the Roanoke colony to fail twice fascinating illustration of the troubles faced by early colonists. It's an illustration of the ideal of Elizabethan exploration. In the early years of James's reign, there were a couple of failed colonization attempts, both following the Roanoke model. The story also introduces some of the characters that we'll meet in the next few episodes, people like Wahoon Seneca, Newport, and Strachey. We've been building a foundation for the last few episodes. People like Wahoon Seneca, Newport, and Strachey. We've been building a foundation for the last few episodes, but the next episode, The Real American History, will officially begin when we, when we talk about what happened to the settlers during their first year at Jamestown. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd rate and subscribe to the show. And you can also visit my website at AmericanHistoryPodcast.net or connect with me on social media. 